Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of Gen Ed. Me and Alana are pretty excited this week to have Sumer Bajaj with us to talk about some medical history. We both have a connection to this topic, so it could be a pretty interesting episode for us. Simmer, would you like to introduce yourself? Of course. So, my name is Simmer. I'm a first year at Harvard, actually studying the history of science um, with a secondary or minor in global health and health policy. Um, I'm interested in, in a career as a physician down the road and hopefully getting involved with shaping health policy um, to ultimately democratize healthcare. Oh, nice. So you also want to be a physician, as I do. I guess what got you down this path to studying um, history and science? Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Of course. So I think it's just a very fascinating interdisciplinary way of looking at the world. Um, I think that both history and science both inform each other. Uh, For example, history, as you'll know, is a story of people, not events. Medicine, similarly, is a care of people, not diseases. So there's this really awesome way that each field informs the other. And I think that I'm hoping to go into medicine down the road and be able to care for patients. Um, And then history is this lens that I can bring to that. History itself is this very unique way of knowing and getting knowledge about the world. Um, And I think something that we can learn from history is that the fact that things were so fundamentally different in the past means that they can be so fundamentally different in the future. And I mean, if anyone's interested in medicine, that gives you a lot of hope. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I I just think about this is a bit of a tangent, but I just think about you know some of the technologies being developed right now, and it's it's incredible to think where we'll be, you know, 100 and 200 years from now versus where we were 100 200 years ago. It's it's incredible how quickly things are advancing, and it really is a really exciting thing to study and to be living through right now. I think. Simmer, I I just mentioned how different things have been in the past, and I'm very curious as somebody who loves to study um, kind of medieval European history, what were some of the medical theories and the medical practices that existed back then that (laughs) no longer exist today? Certainly. I mean, there's a couple of things that are just fascinating about um, medicine in the Middle Ages there was this continuing belief in the humoral theory, um, essentially that said that the body's made up of these four different humors, uh, yellow bile, black bile, blood, phlegm, and essentially that illness was a result of an imbalance between the four. So the Middle Ages saw this um, persistence of Galenic views of medicine, this uh, humoral theory. Um, and of course that resulted in, for example, the practice of bloodletting, where you were trying to restore balance um, through putting leeches on someone. There's also this fascinating obsession with urine, interestingly enough, um, that one writer said that examining urine can show you the reasons for the universe. Um, So it was a very integral part of medicine because at the time it was a very important way of gaining access into the body, this liquid window into the body. Um, Of course, um, urine, that these physicians, they would classify urine in different colors and different ways of, to a certain extent, almost over-classifying it. but what that meant was that they were, they didn't have necessarily a full understanding of the chemistry and biology. So it was a way of trying to diagnose conditions from urine. And um, that was just another one of these big medical theories of the times. And of course, um, astrology, as you can imagine, was another important uh, medical theory at the time. Specifically, the idea that you could predict human affairs through the stars, through the planets, through this and that. Uh, there were actually laws that required physicians to carry the latest horoscopes and charts with them. Um, it was that important. 
um, that, for example, I talked about the humoral theory. Uh, people thought that the four humors were agitated by the moon, right? Like, you know how the moon causes the tides. Maybe it has some relevance for also these humors. So, I mean, they're all very linked and um, not all of them still persist today. But I think we'll get into this later in the podcast that there's a reason that we study history nonetheless, right? That these theories uh, were important then. They're the way these um, individuals looked and analyzed medicine then, and they're worth merit. They're worth a study on in and of themselves. Yeah, these procedures like bloodletting and trepanation, where you like drill holes into someone's skull, is totally mm-hmm. different from what we currently do in medicine. And there's actually thoughts like about. Um, Like, why did they believe in these procedures? Like, there's evil spirits or, like, the spiritual aspect. Could you explain um, or just dive a little bit more into that? Like, why did they believe this? And, like, how is it different from our views today as now we don't focus so much on um, these different beliefs and we focus more on, like, the science aspect of it? Certainly. I mean, I think that, for example, bloodletting, was something that was carried over from the Greek and Roman times. Uh, this idea of restoring balance to the individual. And it was incredibly popular, incredibly well studied. There are numerous treatises from the time uh, that demonstrate, like, for example, where was it appropriate to make these bloodletting incisions? And I mean, similarly, right, the bar- there were barber surgeons, um, which I'm sure we'll also get into later, but they would uh, do everything from pulling teeth to amputating limbs to bloodletting. Um, and part of it was just this very empirical examination. Um, that that characterized the practice of medicine. It was uh, focused on curing diseases, not necessarily finding out the causes. That they do something by observation and experience, um, and uh, that would be favored in, instead of theories and logic, for example. Um, but the human body, interestingly enough, has a great way of re- recovering itself. And we tend to get better just by happenstance. Um, so you can imagine that um, you, the doctor puts the leeches on a patient, the patient gets better. And that's a very strong connection that, okay, the leeches make the patient better, right? When the patient might have gotten better, regardless of whether the leeches were put on them or not. So there's this, in, this emphasis on an em, empirical understanding that, of course, can give you faulty understandings. Um, and then you get at this idea of like evil spirit, spiritual influences, which is also incredibly relevant, that the church was incredibly powerful at the time. Um, influencing medicine, influencing how we understand medicine. And in fact, it was seen that medicine was below this idea of religion. It was was subordinate to religion. Um, That people, for example, with the Black Plague, they thought that a a large section of the population thought it was punishment from God. I'm sure there were some, uh, some that thought that, okay, this is due to this miasma theory of bad air, that these dead animals are causing this poisonous air in the in the poisonous air to come, and then that's causing the disease. But certainly there was this emphasis on religion and um, just the power of the church underlines part of that, um, part of that trajectory. Yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering right now, how did the central church like interact with medicine kind of on the everyday? You know, you often hear about the Catholic church um, kind of mm-hmm. suppressing um, Renaissance thought and suppressing, you know, Galileo is a clear example of where the church Mm -hmm. is like trying to squash science, you know, um, was that happening a lot with the medical field? Was the church really commanding kind of the medical narrative at the time? 
To a certain extent, yes, but I'd also push back a little bit against this nature of medicine and, or I guess science and the church being intrinsically opposed. But just to sort of unpack that first, um, it was certain that certainly medicine was subordinate to religion in Europe. That sickness was thought to first come from sin. Um, and I mentioned the idea of the bubonic plague for already. Um, and so there was certainly that tension. And part of the reason that medicine began to flourish in, with following the Renaissance was this gradual, um, gradual decay in the church's power owing to, for example, Martin Luther and his reform, reformation. Uh, that being said, religion isn't necessarily fundamentally opposed to medicine. Right? There are many examples in science more generally where the two can and are working hand in hand. And I think an important example in the idea of the history of medicine in the Middle Ages is, for example, how the church played an important role in expanding hospitals during the area. That without the church, um, you wouldn't have this um, dramatic increase in the hospital-based care um, throughout Europe. So I, I guess it's just, it's a complicated relationship, not something that we can dramatically, a shift, say, is one-sided or say it's this or that. Um, there's more there's more nuance to it, but certainly I think um, you bring up an important point of how the church's interactions with medicine and science can at times stifle thought and stifle advances. That's a really um, interesting point about like how the church and science like interact a little bit. Um, also now um, going into a slightly different topic, just about how society and like different medical professions interact. Um, like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci did some anatomy, but also the Greek physicians, they found like the human body and then pharmacists with the different humors, like pharmacists are definitely um, perceived differently now than they were then and they have total different um, areas of like skill so could you explain a little bit more about in the middle ages how the different medical profession professions were perceived by society certainly I think it gets at this idea of professionalization because that was certainly an enduring trend during this time period and it gets at this evolving view of how the medical profession was perceived by society. Uh, one of the biggest advances uh, during this time was this development of the university medical school. Um, before, anybody could say they're a doctor, anybody could become a healthcare provider. So this beginning of the formation of the university medical school, symbolized well by Salerno in Italy, the University of Salerno, it meant a trend towards physicians being formally trained. Um, which meant they were subject to legal regulations, for example. They were subject to professional standards. What that meant also was that there was greater legitimacy in your provider uh, in the healthcare, in medicine more generally. And another interesting thing you bring up about how different parts of medicine are treated. Surgeons, for example, were disdained during this time. Um, that we often think about surgeons very highly nowadays. Um, but at the time, they were disdained entirely. Um, doctors, they considered surgery as nothing more than manual labor. Um, they thought of it as a work of a tradesman. So it was very interesting that um, these medieval surgeons um, are actually called barber surgeons because they cut your hair and do surgery. Uh, that's how sort of low a status they had. Um, but these medieval surgeons, right, they would come to be without any formal study. Um, eventually, they'd organize themselves into guilds, but they'd never command the same respect as medical doctors, at least during this time period. So it's this interesting contrast with the professionalization of medicine and this growing status of the medical doctor, yet the continuing disdain of surgery 
and I, I guess what might be exposed to the manual labor of these barber surgeons. That's a truly terrifying thought, having <laughs> having a surgeon be <laughs> be just completely untrained and just kind of wielding around a blade. Not not a happy thought. And you can see how societies would would develop a distrust of those people. Obviously, you you had mentioned earlier how with bloodletting and with leeching how sometimes that led to kind of confirmation bias where people would get better despite these things. And, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, in the view of the medical community, those were legitimate versus when you look at say surgery, it's pretty tough to, to botch a surgery to have someone turn out. Okay. So it's, it, you can see how communities and how, how people would come to distrust these people and to hold them in very low regard. Um, it Yeah, especially without anesthesia. Like, could you imagine yeah. <laughs> a surgeon just like hacking away without any pain drugs or anesthesia? You bring up an important point. That's they had to make sur- surgeries really short because they didn't have painkillers. <laughs> so That's... yeah, no, it was very, very quick. I, I do love little details like that. That That's one thing I love in studying history, just little things like, oh, surgeries used to be shorter because they were so painful. Like, <laughs> and, no, no, it's fascinating. And I mean, uh, these barber surgeons, they, um, they're sometimes called flying barbers um, because they move from city to city, set up camps. Um, so, I mean, they're very mobile, um, in part because if, if they botched up an operation, they could get out of there pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that's... That's, that's just so insane to me. Um, but clearly, as, as you said, there was still some trust in the medical community. You know, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned how doctors were becoming more professionalized, how kind of generally practic- practicing doctors were, um, were becoming more highly regarded. I want, I want to go back a little bit and see... Mm-hmm. All you you mentioned these doctors being trained. What were they being trained on? Who who kind of discovered the tenets of medicine that were being taught at the time, and what were those kind of tenets? Yeah, I mean that's, that's an interesting question, uh, slightly difficult question because I mean, medical education it was formalized during that time, at least in Europe, with Salerno. That is something that I mean I think has been continuing informally for a long time with apprenticeships. Um, that it wasn't that you're sure anybody could be a doctor, right? But um, there was often these apprenticeships that were there. Uh, there were these different ways of knowing and learning. Um, sometimes in the battlefield, right? That these um, these people would get gain experience on the job, so to say. Um, so it's hard to necessarily trace these tenants, um, but to sort of explain what how people were learning. I mean, medical schools differed in many ways. It often started with more theoretical knowledge, right? Um, based on books, based on Galen and other famous um, physicians. Ibn Sina comes to mind. He's a famous Islamic physician who we'll get into probably later. Um, basically, a very book knowledge and wrote on that. Um, then there was also this move towards uh, greater anatomy, greater focus on anatomy. Um, so that I think that, that is well typified by Andreas Vesalius. So he's sometimes called the father of modern anatomy. He wrote this book on the fabric of the human body and very famously would leave these dissections um, for his um, students. Either there's a famous artwork, I'm forgetting the name, 
but that really um, emphasized um, the role of this more hands-on knowledge was playing. Um, there's another there's another physician Paracelsus um, who also typified this more emphasis on this more hands-on um, learning rather than learning from theory and books. But so that was sort of the trend that medical education was taking, and I think it's something that's been it's an enduring trend. But yeah, I think that's sort of how medical education evolved over the years. Yeah, so you mentioned the um, Islamic physician. Um, mm-hmm. Just going off of that, um, how did religion interact with like medicine in Europe and like the Middle East? Um, because now like religion tends to be a little bit um, away from medicine now. Like, um, but could you explain a little bit more? Yeah, so we talked about um, the religion in Europe a bit and how it was subordinate to religion in Europe. That was actually contrasted to the Middle East. Um, there was this culture of scholarship and learning um, that was contrasted to the restrictions of the early Christian church, right? That there was um, religious freedom um, in the Middle East, right? So there was this growth and expansion of knowledge happening in the Middle East um, with these Arabic polymaths. Ibn Sina is one famous example, and there are many others. Um, Essentially, these individuals, they'd be translating works from the Greek and Romans. And we often, we can think about translation as a very rote exercise, right? You're just writing down what someone else is di- doing. And that's been a view by a lot of historians for some time. But the more correct view is not- recognizing translation as this art of commentary itself. Um, that it's not rote. It is that Ibn Sina, when he wrote his canon of medicine, he was intrinsically putting his own commentary, his own thoughts, his own ideas into the text. And it was infused with all that. Um, so the Middle East saw this interesting, um, I guess, um, interesting way of how religion and medicine interconnected that distinguished itself a bit from Europe during the Middle Ages. Yeah, I've, I've long been so interested in the comparison of the Middle East during the Islamic Golden Age to kind of middle age Europe, you know, the the different interactions between church and state and and how that translated to technological advancement. It's it's so exciting to me to um to research those different interactions. And it as I look from kind of the movement of the Middle East and the Islamic world from kind of the rise of the caliphates through the the golden age of um, the so-called golden age of, of the Islamic empires, there's there seems to be, you know, a, a lot of medical advancement and thus a lot of shift in medical views um, during that time period. And I just wonder, both in the Middle East and in Europe, what kind of caused shifts in medical views before we kind of, you know, hit the the scientific revolution and started to use the scientific method more and more, you know, mm-hmm. test-based systems of of discovery? How did how did those shifts occur? Yeah, I mean, I think that Part of the thing is, I would argue that the scientific method has always been in place, although perhaps it's not been codified or uh, explicitly stated until later. But I mean, the essence of scientific method is this idea of hypothesis testing. 
um, and experimentation, all of which were being done by physicians and polymaths for centuries, that everybody was testing hypothesis that they had this idea, I know this root seems to make this person get uh, have a lower fever. Um, and you give it to people who have fever, it works out, right? And then you say, okay, this root treats fevers. So this was happening for a long time, although it was not codified. But I think to get at the idea of what you're saying about shifts, um, it's, I mean, I think another thing that we talk a lot about in the historiography of this time is that the Middle Ages is seen as this, like it's sometimes called the Dark Ages. And the one of the narratives of the Middle Ages is that nothing happened, right? That there was just this gap between uh, classical antiquity and the Renaissance where nothing happened. That um, it was, and obviously that's a flawed view of history and it's very, it ignores the important contribution, for example, of the golden age of Islamic medicine, for example. Um, all that is to say is that it's important that we understand that it's not this dramatic shift from classical antiquity to the Renaissance and nothing in between, but it is this gradual evolution um, from the that is being started in in some ways by classical antiquity being um, being translated, being offered commentary during the Middle Ages by Islamic medicines, and additionally um, work being done in Europe as well, and then that brings us to the Renaissance, um, and it is this gradual shift. It is this. Um, there's certain legacies of medicine in the Middle Ages. There's certain growth that happens in the Renaissance, but they're interconnected. And I think it's important that we see those connections and uh, appreciate those. I was just going to say to add to that real quickly, one thing that I've always disliked that kind of a lot of high school and, and introductory history classes do is is they do what, what you just stated, where they, they kind of carve out explicit time periods and they say things that define each period and then they move on to the next one. And you don't really see that that continual change that takes place. There's, mm-hmm. I've, I've noticed the more that I've studied history, the harder it is to draw lines of, of time periods because that, that change is continual and there is always some sort of, um, some sort of difference from time to time between um, kind of societal views, between technological views, um, no movement comes out of a vacuum. It's basically what I what I'm saying. Um, but go ahead, Alana. Oh yeah, I was just gonna ask um, Simmer about. He mentioned like that time, like overall, like people have um, not an assumption, but they're misinformed that the Middle Ages was a period of time where like nothing really happened, or people don't go in depth to really um, research and look into the history. So what were some like major medical advances that like took place in during the Middle Ages? Certainly. I mean, I think the legacy of medicine in the Middle Ages, there are many things you can point to. Um, you can point to, as we've mentioned before, the establishment of medical education at universities. Um, I mentioned Salerno already. There's another one at Bologna. There are a bunch of universities that, again, started this professionalization of the field and this um, importance of formalized training. Um, there was, as I mentioned also previously, this expansion of hospitals and hospitals as the place of care. There was the golden age of Islamic medicine that catalyzed the future and brought in the Renaissance. So there's these various different important contributions of medicine in the Middle Ages that we miss and ignore if we take this very um, very um, ignorant viewpoint that we just jump from antiquity to the Renaissance and ignore everything in between. 
And I mean, looking at the Renaissance itself, there was growth due to a number of factors and number of seeds that were planted in the Middle Ages. So there's that, as you mentioned, and there's this connection, this continuities. I mean, we've already talked about the weakening of the church with Martin Luther's Reformation. Um, another factor was the invention of the printing press. Um, all that is, I mean, there's countless other factors as well that there was this increase, um, increase in knowledge, increase in um, resources. It helped catalyze the future. And that's the emphasis and the legacy of the Middle Ages. So we, ha- we have to be averse to a historiography that characterizes the Middle Ages as a time of no progress because progress was continuously happening through both the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. So speaking of continuity, um, do we see any of that continuity of kind of Middle Age medical thought or medical treatments extending into today? Are there any, um, any treatments that we still use that were used, you know, a thousand years ago? And, um, and are we shifting back at all away from kind of this very scientific form of medicine back to perhaps more of a, more of an intuitive form of medicine? Well, I mean, I think it's only, it's only inevitable that we're going to use advances and understandings that were pioneered in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance today. Um, I mean, you can look, you don't have to look much further to an understanding of blood circulation, which happened with William Harvey, um, to microscopes, which were um, with Anton von Leeuwenhoek, um, to countless other advances and both technological and physiological and just more general. And certainly there are, there were advances that don't necessarily have relevance for today's medicine, but those advances too are important. Um, I think in, in the history of medicine, there's, it's important to note that Sometimes when we're looking from our very present viewpoint, we only like to study the history that has a relevance for today, that has a relevance for the telos or purpose of modern medicine. And to do that ignores medicine and science as it was practiced then, if we just focus on what is relevant for today. Um, because there's certainly ways that medicine and science was practiced then that are important to understanding it within the context. And they're important for just the development of the field more broadly. Um, if we just focus on what's relevant today, we miss out on quite a bit. And I think with, your, with regard to your shifting past aspect, I think that the establishment of the frameworks on modern medicine are relatively robust. Um, and the ways that medicine were practiced in the Middle Ages, we can, we can benefit from learning them. Right? They're important um, for just how contextualizing all that, contextualizing the advances that both we use and we don't necessarily use as much nowadays. Um, and I guess it gets back to that point of not myopically focusing on the telos of modern science and medicine, but understanding how medicine was in that context. Yeah, for sure. And just looking back, like leeches are still used today in different like medical procedures. Mm -hmm. Like if someone has a rhinoplasty, like a nose job, and there's like an excess amount of blood, they'll use leeches. And some of the um, medical treatments and beliefs like we use today, like um, in the past, even with like the different humors, like those are still pertinent in today's medicine even if they're like slightly changed um even like now there's like alternative medicine with different herbs and like essential oils i like using essential oils just to like relax and stuff so i think it's 
it's definitely still there um and it's important um as we slowly start coming to an end simmer do you have any like words of advice words of wisdom about how the study of studying um historical medicine will can positively impact like the modern world and medicine and overall mm-hmm. uh, certainly i think that often we think about history as a way to learn from our past and inform our present and i think it's, it's very it's something that's very often said but i truly believe it that we're experiencing all the covid19 pandemic right now and looking at the black death the black plague for example we can learn some lessons about how to approach this pandemic and how and just evaluate ourselves on that matter so for example both the black death and covid saw active global connections between human societies underline the spread um we've seen multiple ways of infections in both situations um we've seen people seek easy answers and solutions to fighting the disease uh, we've seen groups be scapegoated based on existing prejudice in both situations as well um we've seen both disproportionately impact certain groups and, and that gets at the matter of equity all that is to say is that when we were in the, in the initial stages of the pandemic a lot of people did and a lot of people used history as a way to predict and sort of understand how we how we might respond and i think that the study of history helps us understand more generally our present more generally what our future might look like that the world is ever shifting and the future is always going to be uncertain but an understanding of our past an understanding of the various factors that underline our present situation can help us carve out a path towards our future simmer i just wanted to thank you so much for for coming on today this has been such an interesting conversation i'd love to just dive into into depth on on all of these things but um unfortunately we we do not have a multi-hour podcast to record. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for for coming on today, Simmer. Yeah. Oh, may I ask Simmer, because um, as our audience doesn't know, Simmer actually has his own podcast. So do you want to shout out your podcast really quick? Of course, that would be wonderful. Um, I have a podcast. It's called That Medic Podcast. Um, essentially, I interview various people in the healthcare field and get their advice for students. So um, most recently, I interviewed the director of the National Eye Institute and talked to him about what actual advice he has for students interested in research. Uh, so definitely check that out if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. If you're if you're interested in medicine, like Alana, um, that sounds like an incredible resource to to reach out to. That that's incredible. Um, so you guys should definitely go check out Simmer's podcast. You guys could also go check out Wave Learning Festival. Um, over at Wave, they have so many courses and and tutoring services that you can um, access for free. So be sure to go check out Wave Learning Festival, and we will see you guys next week. <laughs>